Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and my guest today is Don DiGirillamo. And he has written a couple of really interesting books that I wanted to draw your attention to. One of them is It's Not About the Sex, stories of human trafficking based on interviews. He previously wrote a creative nonfiction book about the human side of policing. That's what got him interested in the subject of human trafficking. And so his book, It's Not About the Sex, True Stories of Human Trafficking from a Law Enforcement Officer, a Survivor, a Brothel Madam, and an Advocate is tough reading, but at the same time shines a light into a pretty ugly part of our culture. But what I really wanted to discuss with him uh, was a booklet he created for parents called It's Not About the Predator, A Parent's Guide to Internet and Social Media Safety. And in this book, he takes a look at how predators approach teens online, real examples of predator tactics to exploit kids and teens, tips for parents on how to protect their kids taking a look at social media and how predators utilize social media, how kids subvert parental controls on electronic devices like smartphones. And this is a lot of really valuable advice because in my own career talking about pornography and social media and these issues, I see this kind of stuff all the time. Parents often know less about how to get around on technology than their kids do. And it's really important if you want to protect your kids, especially online, to know what you're getting into when you give them a device. And so just to give you a bit of background on John, he, in addition to being an author, is an activist on the issue of human trafficking. He's a retired CPA who currently lives in Colorado, and you can find his books at itsnotabout.com. This is that conversation. I hope you all find it helpful. So I'll just start off by asking you kind of to describe some of the books and the resources you've written over the last while, because you've been writing books for quite some time. What made you get interested in the topic of the connections between pornography, sexual abuse and sex trafficking? Because it's a pretty miserable subject. It's very serious. And so when I was writing a book about police officers, which I was trying to profile the human side of policing, what are middle America rural cops doing? And I would ask them, for example, tell me about a day on the job you'd never forget. And I got all kinds of interesting answers. And that was kind of the source of that book. And when I was interviewing one of the um, police officers, I would typically end my interviews with just easy questions. What's your favorite song? What's your favorite movie? What would you do if you won the lottery? And one of the guys just sort of stopped stone cold and said, if I won the lottery, I would quit my job and hunt down human traffickers. And, you know, I'm expecting I'd go, you know, get a house on the lake and go fishing all day. And this guy wants to go hunt down human trafficking. And when he said that, I thought to myself, one, I don't know much about that. And that sounds like my next book. So what did you find when you started looking into into these stories? Because you've not only written this book about, about sex trafficking called It's Not About the Sex, you've also written a, a resource and a guide for parents on why pornography can help groom children to be preyed upon. And then, of course, so many predators were also prey once themselves, right? Many abusers were once abused themselves. And so you see pornography, pornography fundamentally grooming people into these behaviors and also grooming them to accept behaviors and pornography sort of poisoning the well on all of these things. One of the people that I profiled in the book on human trafficking was a brothel madam's tale of redemption. And she essentially talks about how over 10 years, 
as she called it, she went to the bottom of the sin barrel and, uh, and then eventually, you know, kind of came back to the church, came back to God. And I, I wouldn't have included her story unless there was some kind of redemption piece. Part of her story was uh, spending time in Los Angeles doing pornography. And so I, I got some insight from her about kind of what that industry is like, but also what did it do to her as a person? And she ultimately said that what she was seeing was herself as part of the problem because she said that pornography feeds the fantasy of having some kind of sexual encounter with somebody who's underage. And when when that was said, I just kind of got thinking about that on what are those bigger influences that pornography is having, because it's not just affecting, say, somebody who's paying money for sex, for example, but how does that impact the broader person, say, a 12-year-old who's who's viewing pornography, because as we know, that the trend to view it younger and younger has been happening for a decade. And, you know, pop star Billie Eilish said last year that she started watching pornography at 11. She's 20 now. So, so that's, you know, that's a long time. It has to have an effect on people. And that's what I started looking at is to see how that connection was made. So what kind of connections did you find? Because when I was doing research for my book, The Culture War, and I give presentations on pornography, I think I've given 30 or 40 of them this year alone. And what I consistently find is that pornography has not only normalized sexual violence, it's made sexual violence seem like an acceptable part of romance now. So you've got things like Fifty Shades of Grey, which is essentially the story of you know an abusive relationship that doesn't end in a cemetery. Uh, so you have all of these different um, ways in which pornography is glamorizing things. And one of the things one of my friends who often also gives presentations on this said that I found particularly heartbreaking is a girl described something that had happened to her and then said, was that sexual assault? Because the violence in pornography has so thoroughly blurred the lines between what is obviously assault and what is just sort of standard sexual material that people don't even know the difference anymore. So what did you find with regards to sex trafficking? What's happening, I, I think, is if you look on what it's doing, it, it's kind of like the new drug, right? And, and, and I think a lot of times um, doctors are saying that it, it, it rewires the brain when you've had a lot of usage. So if, you, if it's, you think about it as the new drug, you need the new high. And what are you know, what, what are more trending situations? They want younger looking, they want to have some kind of, you know, gang rape in, instance where they're destroying the innocent. And so we're seeing the videos become more explicit, more deviant, more violent, more degrading. Um, and I think it was um, one of the stats I saw out there was like 40% increase in that kind of thing. So what does that mean? Well, not everybody is going to act on that. But, but some people are going to try to act out that fantasy. And that can happen in a couple of different forms. It can happen in some kind of sexual abuse situation, say somebody that that person has access to, uh, or they could look to fulfill that fantasy by you know, going to somebody at a motel room. And if that person's underage, that, you know, by definition, that's a crime, that's sex trafficking. 
And the third piece is they could become an online predator where, where they're looking for content from, from other, other teens, say, for example, um, which then is, is creating child pornography. So that's what I saw. I saw these sort of three outcomes. Obviously, everybody's not doing that, but some percent are going to go into an abusive situation where they're preying on somebody or they're going to act it out by meeting somebody who's underage. And by definition, that's crime. Yeah, it's interesting because initially there were people who actually defended some of these forms of por pornography by saying, look, right, if people have these desires then pornography is a way for them to fulfill those desires uh, in a less unhealthy way, which is wrong for a bunch of reasons. Because first of all, of course, the woman in the in, in the porn shoot is actually enduring, is actually suffering, is actually going through all the things you see on screen. It's not in a movie when somebody gets shot, they, they didn't get actually shot. It's pretend. In a porn film, when a woman gets beaten up, they're actually beating her up. So what you're watching is is something horrifying. Secondarily, of course, what people seem to have have misunderstood is that pornography isn't an outlet for desires. In many, many cases, it creates desires that didn't previously exist. It nurtures existing desires, and it drives more of a demand for this sort of behavior rather than less. What did your research reveal when you were kind of looking at these three stages you referred to? So a couple of things. So, so the person that, that I, I featured in the book, Jessica, she said that there's much coercion on set when they're shooting these videos. So absolutely what you said, they are really getting beat up. They're essentially told while it's happening to, you know, quote, ask for it. So that way they're, you know, it's looking to the viewer that that's, that's what they want, so to speak. And so that's one thing. And, 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 and what you're seeing then is, is having an effect on the, on somebody. It's, you know, it's just like anything else. If you see something a hundred times, it starts to become normal. And, you know, I, I, I think it was um, Don Haskins of the Center for Exploited Children said that we're seeing pornography, sex abuse and trafficking merge online. And there was a, um, you know, a lawsuit against Pornhub, which I think you've written about. And after that lawsuit was alleged, you know, half the videos went down because they either featured somebody online or featured un someone online who was actually being trafficked. And so that right there, you know, it's antidotal evidence, but it's, it's telling me that that's what's really happening. And ultimately, it results in normalizing that behavior. It's just like violence on TV. If you look at a movie 50 years ago, the violence is way different than today because now it's normalized. And, and you know, every, every crime show, you're seeing somebody get shot. But as you say, that's not real. They're using fake blood or whatever. Pornhub took down 10 million videos overnight, which is just a staggering number of them, considering the fact that Pornhub is one of the top five porn companies, but has been more or less a monopoly for a very long time. And incidentally, they just got pulled off TikTok with their 13 million followers because, yeah. again, Layla Micklewaite, who runs Trafficking Hub, which is a movement to stop Pornhub, has revealed once again that the amount of human trafficking and sexual assault, uh, that is criminal sexual assault that goes on, is is kind of just staggering. So one of the things I wanted to get into with you that will be really useful for listeners is you wrote a resource for parents. Tell us a bit about this resource and why you felt after writing a book that was essentially a collection of stories that you felt it was really important to write a booklet for parents. I was doing some presentations on the book and I started getting a lot of questions 
about um, the predator and the predator tactics. And what I saw was that the tactics that somebody is using for human trafficking is very similar if they're trying to, say, get somebody to send them sexual content or meet at a motel or, or something like that. And I saw this overlap. And I started getting a lot of these questions about, well, what's the, what's the tactic from an, for an online predator? And so I started really kind of, kind of mapping that out and, and saying, what's that predator playbook? What are the things that they're doing? And I, I essentially took the presentation that I was doing and put it into a easy to read, quick guide, you know, very fast uh, information for parents to, um, to do. Now, ultimately, if you're a parent that's not really paying attention to what your kid is doing, you know, no matter how many booklets you read, it's, it's not going to happen. And ultimately, I found that, you know, even though your teen might not be looking for trouble, trouble's looking for them. What kind of stories did you find when you were doing your research with regards to how this was unfolding? Because you've got a bunch of different stories about people were trafficked. What percentage of the people that you spoke with, both the stories you included and the ones you didn't, did porn play a role in what was happening to them? I would say uh, probably at least half, because what, what I was hearing from law enforcement and others is that you're seeing that pornography is feeding that, that person, that sex buyer is, is, is what I call that person in the book. We're, we're seeing that person wanting to live out those fantasies and they're, they're seeking underage teens in order to do that. And they may, they may want to do things that maybe their, their spouse doesn't want to do. And that, that sex buyer is not somebody who you can just kind of pick out out of a lineup. It's typically a middle-aged man who's middle-class is married, has a job, you know, many times has kids looks to be, you know, kind of somebody who blends into society. So what we're seeing is part of the coercion by the criminal is to take videos and they're going to use that to make threats, to send, send around to their family, friends, et cetera. That's part of the shaming process. But they're also going to use that content to for either child pornography sites uploading your pornography, trying to make money, et cetera. And, uh, and so we're seeing that coercion as a very common thing, which is why a lot of times when they bust these guys, there's a lot of video content that they can use against them. You know, unfortunately, of course, you know, the percent that law enforcement is working on is really small. The, the, the law enforcement officer that I interviewed was from the Denver Metro. He said they worked on about 100 cases. He estimated there was 1,000 in the Denver Metro area. That means they're working on 10% and not all of those turn out to be convictions, of course. One of the things I wanted to do is, so taking a look at your book, it's not about the predator, a parent's guide to internet and social media safety. You have on your website here, you pose a bunch of different questions. And I'd like to actually ask you a couple of those questions so the listeners can know what you were working on. And the one question that stood out to me among several was, is social media safe? Because everybody's kids are on social media now. And most people seem to think that those who are warning about the dangers of social media are just exaggerating. So is social media safe? No, it's, it's, it's not. And the reason is, is that there's so many different applications and so many of these games, social media accounts, couple things. They, they all have chat room. They all have private messaging. 
That's where the predators hang out. Staysafe.org estimates there's 750,000 predators that are online. And where are they going to go hang out? Well, they're going to go hang out on a kid's game, for example. So I interviewed an undercover police officer, and we talked about this game called Roblox, which is a a game targeted to about 8 to 10-year-olds. Fairly appropriate game, not a problem. But what does it have? It has a private chat room. And people were coming to this officer saying, my kid has been chatting with this person for six months. And, you know, they've completely groomed this person. And I had no idea because they may be checking on, for example, what they're playing, but they're not necessarily checking on those chat rooms. You know, same thing like uh, Snapchat. There's this secret folder called My Eyes Only. And just like it implies, it is where you keep pictures, videos, and quote, quote unquote, secrets. And so you might be trying to be a diligent parent. For example, oh, what's my kid's Snapchat story? Okay, it looks appropriate, not a problem. But yet, what's underneath this that maybe, and maybe they didn't create content, but maybe somebody sent it to them. And the next thing you know, there's a bunch of inappropriate content on that kid's phone. And that's what these predators are, are shooting for. They're, they're trying to see who reacts who has some kind of unmet need that maybe they need, you know, someone to affirm whatever they're doing, whatever they're feeling. And, and then they start that, that isolation process where they try to convince the person that only the predator is the one that really cares about them. When you were t- taking a look at this, you also said that there's a lot of uh, specific methods the predators use to approach teens online. So you just mentioned one of them, isolation, so that parents can have an idea of what predator tactics would look like on social media and games, which you mentioned. Maybe give us a couple of examples of what that would look like. Some of the things that they're going to try to tell somebody is that they shouldn't trust their friends, they shouldn't trust their parents or other trusted adults, say a teacher, a coach. They're going to tell them that, they're the only one that cares about them. They're the only one that loves them. They're going to you know, make all their dreams come true. They may use things like, I can help you become an Instagram influencer or become a model or something like that. Now, to a lot of adults, you, you know, some of us might think, well, who would fall, fall for that? Well, when you're 13 or 14 or 15 and your life is so in, integrated into your online presence, it's a lot easier to be manipulated because kids today, if you think about it, they're like no other generation out there because they've grown up with it. It's so integrated into their lives. And there's a lot of their self-esteem is based on what their online presence look like, how many likes, how many followers. And when it comes to social media, you need that, that kind of self-esteem pat on the back every single day. You can't just do one Snapchat story and everybody likes it and you feel good. You don't need it. Send another one for six months. You're sending one hours later. And so that teen brain needs that that affirmation. And that's what the predators are, are going to give. When you're a teenager, a lot of times you don't always tell your parents what you're doing. You want to you know, kind of keep things private, et cetera. And then the next thing you know, that, that teen is being manipulated and they don't even know it. 
How do teenagers get around parental controls for all those parents who are keeping an eye on things and saying, I installed something on their phone and now I'm good to go. I don't need to worry about that. Is that true or should they worry anyways? They should definitely worry. So in my booklet, I list several ways that teens can circumvent parental controls. You know, in the old days, if you wanted to be sneaky, you had to be creative or ask your friends. Now all you have to do is ask Siri, Alexa, YouTube, etc. You know, I was talking to my daughter who's a police officer and she said, go to YouTube and type in how to get around strict parents. And I went and typed that and there's just video after video of people, mostly teens, giving you very specific instructions. One of them was, you know, the quote unquote advanced version. And it was this teenage girl smoking a bong while telling you how to do this. You know, all these different tactics. So, for example, one of them is the calculator program. So it actually performs real math functions. But if you look at that in the App Store, the second line says, keep secrets, hide photos, etc. Another example is the GPS spoofer. So you might have like a find my friends on your iPhone or something like that. But if you get a GPS spoofer, which has been downloaded more than 10 million times, you can trick your phone into saying, I'm at your friend's house or I'm at still at school or wherever, when in fact you might be somewhere totally different. And if the parents don't know that they've downloaded those programs, then they're definitely circumventing all those controls. You could start your phone in safe mode. You know, there are apps that you can download that hide apps that you're using. So there's all kinds of things out there. And that's why ultimately I say it's, it's not really safe and I'm And you've got to monitor that on a regular and consistent basis as a parent. Otherwise, who knows what's going to happen? If a parent is listening right now and is thinking, well, this is really freaky. And I know a lot of examples just for those who are listening who think that maybe this is an exaggeration. Or, of course, somebody who's written a book on how to avoid predators is going to emphasize, you know, great care and caution. But does this happen to a lot of people? Like I could list people in church communities, people who've reached out to me. Um, whose whose kids have ended up engaging with predators online. I know adults who who have done things online. They deeply regret when they were young because they were also groomed online. So this is very much a problem everywhere, which is the whole reason I wanted to have this conversation in the first place. What are three things that you would tell a parent to do after listening to this conversation right away? A couple things. You should definitely install some kind of program. It's a guardrail, but it's not fail-safe. Something like Bark or Canopy, very uh, popular and effective. That's one thing. I would monitor your kid's phone on a regular basis, including all chat rooms. So, you know, my philosophy is, I'm sorry, your teenager does not have a right to privacy. You're the parent, not the friend. You own the phone. You're paying for the phone. Act like it. So, so go and check the stuff out. Now, you don't need to go in like some you know, parent bully and have that conversation, but talk to your kid as to why you're doing this. Because again, they may not be looking for trouble, but someone could be looking you know, for them. And so you've got to explain that you know, we live in a world where there's predators everywhere. The, you know, it's the stranger danger of 2022 is Wi-Fi. That's the great equalizer because if you're online doesn't matter whether you're in the middle of you know a mountain town out in the country or downtown new york city if you're online predators see you too 
And so you've got to monitor that at least once a week and explain to them what you're trying to do. You're trying to keep them safe. And again, it, it may not be even them because there's stories out there about, you know, somebody's, you know, gets a, a picture of, of someone else at school. They put it on a group chat. And next thing you know, there's 20 people looking at this picture. So your kid might not be the one who's, say, started all that, but they could be on that group chat. You would have another question that I, I found was was interesting and piqued my interest where you said, uh, what an undercover police officer wants parents to know as part of this 30 page thing. So without giving it all away, because parents should obviously get this booklet. Um, what do undercover police officers want parents to know about online safety? A lot of people think that, well, I have sons. I don't really need to worry about that. And, and that's just not true at all. So one of the stories that uh, was told to me is a typical tactic of a predator is to set up a, a fake profile of a good looking, say, college age woman. And that person, you know, has, say, nude pictures of themselves. And it's probably something they've downloaded from pornography. They'll send it to the boy and say, hey, here's my picture. I've sent it to you. Now you show me. They convince him to send a picture to her or whoever the fake profile is. They'll send that picture and immediately get extorted. And uh, the officer said that many times all that happens within 24 hours. And so now you've got A, a picture that's out there, and B, that person's being extorted. And of course, if you pay any money, five minutes later, they're going to ask for money again because they're going to threaten to send it around to your social network, you know, everyone on your friends list, et cetera. So that's, that's one thing that, that, that happens more often than we'd like to think. In your research, when it comes to the issue of pornography, a lot of people are, are I, I don't, I feel like a lot of people don't understand the extent to which this impacts every single family. And it's something that a lot of people don't realize affects pretty much every human relationship in one way or another at this point. What would be one of your tips for a parent on how to deal with pornography? Because as you point out in your book, pornography feeds sexting, extortion, and human trafficking. And of course, beyond that, it rewires your brain. So what would your advice on pornography be? I think you want to explain that really all all the pitfalls, you know, your moral position on it. To me, it's really the war on women. That That's what's really objectifying. And if you look at pornography, what does it have on the teen and adolescent brain? Well, if you view that on a, on a regular basis as a teen, then you're seeing content all the time that makes creating that content, looking at that content, it normalizes it. Then when you're in school and somebody sends or 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 asks for say a nude picture sending and receiving content from peers now becomes normal what does that outcome look like well it it feeds a hookup culture it it makes uh sex to be physical transactional no intimacy no love it devalues marriage and it really blurs that kind of concept of consent and of course you know, ultimately what is the benefit to the predator well if you're used to sending pictures, you're used to seeing pornographic content, when a predator asks a teen for a picture, it doesn't seem out of context. And so, and that's where, again, the extortion can happen. That's where, you know, a picture of somebody can be posted online. And as we all know, once it's out on the internet, it doesn't go away. And 
teens already have a hard time growing up. So that results potentially in cyberbullying, depression, revenge porn, can lead to suicide, et cetera. So all these bad outcomes can happen when you just start with, oh, I'm just watching it. I'm not hurting anybody, that kind of attitude. Well, it, it doesn't really lead you down that path. Um, it really leads you down the path of, of really having no relationship whatsoever. And it just kind of warps that view of, of what, how women and men should be having a relationship. All right. Finally, where can people order this booklet? It is sold on Amazon. So if, if you look up my name, John DiGirolamo, or you go to It's Not About the Predator, you'll see that. It's Not About the Sex is also on Amazon. And there's a great audio version of that book as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this with us and for all the advice. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being on. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Don G. Dromo about his books. It's not about the sex, but also more importantly, about his guide for parents about protecting their kids online. If you want to listen to other conversations like this, head over to lifesitenews.com, click on the podcast tab. You can find past shows there and subscribe to future shows. You'll find our shows wherever you get your podcast content. Thanks so much for listening this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.